Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing fine this morning. It's a little, uh, little uh, overcast here in New York, but uh, we got uh, Richard North with us this, from London this morning. We have London-style weather here, and this is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb, and indeed we do have Richard North here from Wow Stuff. Welcome, Richard. Hello, Chris. Hello, Richard. How are you guys? Well, Richard, you're a young man on the way up. <laughs> I haven't been called a young man on the way up. And uh, the last time I, I remember something similar to that was I was about 26 years old working for, for somebody. And they said, Guy, this, this guy now is so young and he's, he's up and coming and he's going to be fantastic. That was 20, 28 years ago. <laughs> Richard, you're the founder, you're the CEO of Wow Stuff. Uh, you got a wonderful history before that. Can you just take a second and let the two or three uh, listeners who don't know who you are know who you are? I'll, I'll try not to be too boring um, for you guys because um, I've not been in the toy industry perhaps for as long as, as many of the listeners uh, of your podcast. So I got into toys 10 years ago, 2010. So prior to that, um, if I go right back to the early years, 18 to sort of 24, worked for um, a successful self-made business person. Um, I remember one of my earliest memories of, uh, of that era was him picking me up uh, at the side of the road. I got off the bus uh, on my way into work and he was in his Bentley motor car <laughs> and he pulled over. He said, I think you work for me, don't you? One of my divisions within my my group um so there's lowly me um in my pristine suit or it looked pristine um it was a very cheap suit i remember but it looked quite <laughs> neat so the, uh, but other than the fact that it had been snowing heavily and in the walk from the bus stop to where he picked me up there was a load of mud and sludge and when i got into his car he's his beautiful Bentley. I remember it all dripping off the bottom of my trouser legs all over his lamb's wool or sheepskin car mats and thinking, my goodness, he's going to fire me. Look what I've done to his car. Um, so that was one of my earliest memories. But he was inspirational. He was a businessman, did very well. And I remember thinking one day I'd like my own business. So he was an inspiration. Um, I, I got to work with an American guy. Uh, we represented his products in the UK. Off the back of that, I set my first company up selling similar products, binoculars, telescopes. I then um, sold that company, went into the internet, now around about 97, 98. I remember you guys in the US were ahead of us over here in the UK. You'd really embraced e-commerce. We were just thinking about it at that point. So I set up what was really a mail order business and then uh, a website off the back of that. Now about 99, my website came out and that went quite well. I built that up. We built a back-end system off the back, which was successful. And I sold them off in bit parts and then got into gifts and gadgets in 2006, which led to getting into the toy industry in 2010. And here you've come full circle because you are speaking to us from your Bentley in the middle of London. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in a Bentley. Um, I did own a Bentley, actually. Uh, it was, was a lifelong ambition to own a Bentley, so I did have one for a period. My tastes are a lot more modest uh, these days. But I'm sitting in a car. 
one of the things about COVID is people have been so forgiving about audio quality and uh, we're not in a we're not in a studio. So it's it's about the content and the substance. So, uh, Richard, go ahead. You were going to ask something. Yeah. Um, didn't you do some television for a while? <laughs> I did appear in a couple of television features, but I wouldn't say I was a kind of a regular. I, I, I'd been lucky with a business. I suppose a bit of hard work and luck came together at the right time. And one of my businesses really took off. And I got approached by a TV series in the UK called Secret Millionaire. And they approached people who were, were well off and classed as millionaires and asked them to appear on this show. And what they would do is they would plant that person, that millionaire, into an area of the UK that was on hitting difficult times, that was very poor area, and they would put you amongst people that needed a lot of support and help in some way. And it could be in all sorts of ways. And typically, the the person would, uh, i.e. me, would offer that help in any way they could using their business brain typically, but also using money. So you would give your personal money to support a cause that you felt needed it most in the period that you were based in that area. And they would put you there for about eight or nine days. You would live on very modest means. You'd actually live on what we called the dole, which was about 50 pounds a week, which was what a lot of these poor people were living on. And that would have to pay for everything. That would be your food, your shelter, the whole lot. So you, you can imagine people were... Uh, people were just eating um, what we call beans on toast, um, which is a staple diet of, of, of unfortunately, too many people. And uh, you'd live on that or egg on toast uh, pretty much morning, noon and night. And then I'd go out and about during the day and they filmed it. And uh, at the end, I chose the people I wanted to help the most. And at this point, all of the people that you were amongst didn't know what your real background was they actually thought that you were making a documentary for a TV series, that you were a, a regular reporter and that you weren't, you didn't have that wealthy background. Before we started recording, we talked a little bit about how you were looking down the street and seeing that London seems to be coming back from COVID to a certain extent. How has the, the pandemic been for you and your company? What, what, what did you guys experience and how are you coming out of it? At the beginning of lockdown, you know, it was it was novel, wasn't it? I, I think a lot of people found working from home, uh, if they hadn't done that much before, uh, probably quite interesting. And uh, from my point of view, I've not really liked offices. I've always liked to work outside of an office, gone to meet people, shake their hands physically, look into their eyes and, and do deals that way. So... But, but actually, not working in office didn't, didn't bother me. Um, I started to make use of my study at home. And we got everybody out of our offices. So Hong Kong office, our Los Angeles office, and our UK office. And found that people were more productive. Uh, for the first three months, we were getting through a lot of stuff. The Zoom meetings, you know, the video conference meetings, everybody was turning up to on time. Nobody was really late. They were very productive because you had an agenda you got through that agenda. I think there was less social interactions within those calls. They became a little bit formulaic. And I think that was difficult and still is. You don't have that ability to sort of nudge and 
joke and um and and there doesn't seem to be the time on those calls to share stories those kind of social interactions so i think we've all found that a little bit hard but we've been more productive now in the last few weeks uh i think noticeably and, and interestingly you know for your listeners perhaps i've just come off a morning of back-to-back calls with my colleagues one-on-ones that we do every six weeks where i gauge the temperature see what how people are feeling about working from home and if there's anything on their minds, any worries and that kind of stuff. And everybody so far has said the same thing. They're now really missing their colleagues. They're phys- physically seeing them, talking to them, meeting them. So that's 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 the challenge right now. Uh, Richard, why don't you tell us a little bit about WowStep? So, yeah, we, we were, we're a, a toy company now, but we weren't, I wouldn't say we would have been classed as a toy company five or six years ago. So even though we got into toys in 2010, with um, our first product was a robotic monkey that we called Dave. Um, and the reason we called it Dave was simply because um, it was the most ridiculous thing to call uh, a toy robotic monkey at that time, or, or so we all felt, <laughs> and therefore it would get it would get stand out. People would remember it. Um, so we um, we launched that product in the UK. At that point, our business was four years old already. It had been growing very quickly, but in the gifts section uh, of the of the market. And by gifts, I mean sub fifteen dollars at retail. Uh, we were a UK based business and selling primarily to UK retailers. So when we launched that monkey four or five years later, we were now in the toy aisle and we were selling to toy retailers, both in the UK and then very quickly in the US because Toys R Us at the time were always looking for the next big thing and had plenty of shelf space. So they picked up on that monkey put it into the stores it did reasonably well it didn't do as well as it did in the uk in the uk we sold quarter of a million pieces at about 30 dollars retail so it was our first first toy and it was a hit and i think the reaction from that internally in our business was wow god the toy business it's fantastic isn't it isn't it so easy um compared to the struggle you know to, that we were having to sell uh, previously, you know, 100 different gifts or 200 different gifts uh, to 40 different retailers, and we would sell maximum 3,000 pieces per line. And, and we've just come out with a toy and sold 250,000 at a higher price point. Um, so, yeah, so we thought this is easy. And then, um, and then we realized it wasn't. The big learning then was when we went back to Toys R Us, to say, okay, so how many how many Dave the monkeys do you want in 2011? <laughs> they said, they said, hang on, hang on, we had that in 2010. Well, yeah, yeah, but you sold like thirty, forty thousand pieces. So, so how many would you like for that? And that was in three months. So, how many do you want in 2011? We were thinking they were going to say, you know, a hundred thousand pieces, and they said, well if it's the same product we don't want it you know unless you've got a mark ii version and you've refreshed it and that's when we kind of learn how you have to keep refreshing you have to keep putting new angles even on existing products to keep them in the minds of the consumers and there is so much about marketing with a gift industry of course you put it on the shelf it's sold out the following year the retailer would say yeah 
I sell about 4,000 pieces of that gift over an eight-week period. So we'll, we'll take that again. Have you got anything new that we can sort of add to the range and you'd add in more product? But therefore, you would keep your existing lines going and they, they, you would keep them. They were relevant still. The toy industry, we found, was kind of in, in today, out tomorrow. What's next? What's new? So that was a big eye-opener. We, we then launched Air Swimmers, which was this five feet, four feet long, three foot wide, helium-filled balloon in the shape of a shark and in the shape of a clownfish. It was an American inventor company that, that came up with that, that idea. And our techie people, because I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that my co-founders and the team that we've built in our product development team, they're a group of scientists. So, so they're, very, they're very technology savvy. And they could see what was required to make this product really really work well and pass all the relevant testing that all the big box stores needed. So we, we went to work on that. And in return from for the, from the American company, we got the rights to, uh, to take it to market for all big box stores in the US. We also did all the patent work. So we got all the patents through. We ended up defending those patents vociferously. <laughs> I, I, the other learning very quickly from the toy industry um, <laughs> came in year two with uh it was a kind of an oh my god moment i i could not believe having worked in four different industries before this one i couldn't believe how rife copying was how blatant it was and how people kind of almost gave up in terms of protecting their ideas their designs their their intellectual property because of this kind of attitude of, well, you know, you've got to spend a huge amount through the law, law through the courts to protect your your products, and the, the chances of you winning is, you know, no matter how rock solid you think your IP is, it's probably still 50-50. And then on top of that, the company that's ripped you off is probably going to have given up and gone home once they've made some money, and you'll never find them again. So yeah, I, we we came out with air, air swimmers and copies everywhere. So I thought, well, look, I made some money in previous businesses. I'll fight them. It's not fair. I, I believe in things being fair and right. So I decided to, um, to to go after them. So we issued all sorts of lawsuits. And it took us six years in and out of courts, which we don't shout loudly about, but um, but we do protect our IP quite, quite strongly. And um, having spent about a million pounds um, so about $1.3 million at today's rate. Uh, we won and um, we, we protected the patents. And um, But by that point, of course, the product had become irrelevant. So it was a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, that's that's the, the, the nature of the toy industry. And we're going to take a break right there to bring you a word from one of our sponsors, Kid Stuff Public Relations. We'll be right back with our conversation with Richard North, one of the founders of Wow Stuff. This is PR Insights with Kid Stuff Public Relations President Lisa Orman, and we're talking a little bit about the changing world of influencers. We really love working with influencers and bloggers, and we found a way to make it work for them and work for our small entrepreneurial clients in the absence of a really huge budget. This is Chris Byrne, and you can hear my entire conversation with Lisa Orman at kidstuffpr.com and learn about this dynamic public relations agency. 
And we're back. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host Richard Gottlieb, and we're continuing our conversation with Richard North, one of the founders of Wow Stuff. You also have been very aggressive with licensing. You've had a lot of success with your Harry Potter stuff. I had the uh, the invisibility cloak last year was such a was such a huge hit. I had that on uh, live with Kelly and Ryan. And fun story about that: Amanda Lau from the PR agency in the break because you had no time to set it up in the break she is yelling at everybody on that set get out of the way i'm calibrating the the camera it was i'm sitting there going they're never gonna have me back it was going to work no matter what and fortunately it did but it was an amazing product and part of your whole harry potter line which which continues to do very well yeah, we, we were very fortunate to um, to have bumped into the team at Warner Brothers at the right time, I think, a few years ago. And they were um, looking at their, the Harry Potter brand. And they'd done, as you, as you probably know, quite a lot of licensing. But, but they'd been very careful about how they'd licensed it and where they'd licensed it. And, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling... Um, and the Blair partnership that she works with to protect that brand and to work with Warner Brothers. They're all so protective of the brand. We came along at the right time, and I think because of the nature of our product development team being full of scientists, I think it gave them a lot of confidence that when we said we thought we could make a cloak, uh, the cloak of invisibility and, and uh, the special effects, we could replicate just as you saw them in the movie. That we had that credibility with the team that we've got. And when we showed them the prototypes, it was a fantastic moment. Um, you know, we, we unveiled it, I remember, on my, my laptop and showed one of my directors, uh, again, one of my scientist guys, he was using the prototype and everybody kind of just jumped back and, and, and in awe and said, wow, you know, never seen anything quite like that before. So, and then we, we, we did the mystery snitch, the heliball snitch, um, wands some really magical wands but the cloak yeah it was a, a bit of a global sensation well, it, I, it, it, it did super well i think one of the things that i've observed about harry potter from the beginning is that and and where you guys are really strongly positioned is that kids didn't want to play with the characters the action figures never were blowouts they wanted to become the characters they wanted to feel like they were in hogwarts and that that's been one of the unique aspects of that license and it's actually transformed a lot of other licenses into experiential play that have come afterwards it, it's interesting chris that's a really great point i think that you make there because we still feel a little bit like outsiders in the toy industry because we, we don't all come from the industry although i must say we've got a lot more people now who are from the industry within the business and that's added fantastic value but one of the things that we live by is being on brand in universe always and when we approached the harry potter brand we saw what you just described we saw toy companies do, trying to produce products that are traditional of the toy industry the play sets the action figures but actually if you sort of take a step back and really just look at the brand not look at it from what you know you can produce and what you always produce and what works with most brands. So in other words, take get away from that cookie cutter type of approach and then look at that brand and immerse yourself with the fans, 
with the people that love the brand. And you saw absolutely what you're talking about there, that people wanted to be Harry Potter. The girls wanted to be Hermione, you know, and, the, you know, the dress ups. That's where the business was, the dress up clothing um, and the ones where you could then play act that you're, you're Harry Potter. So that was, a, that was a big learning for us as well. We spotted it, and that's, that's absolutely the approach we took with Warner Brothers. We think it's more of a role play. We want to get into you being Harry or Hermione or any of those characters, you know, Dumbledore and so on. And our product range definitely reflects that. Richard, um, I met you at least 10 years ago in a trade show. I think it was in China or Hong Kong. Or, at that time, I'm, I'm not sure if you're still doing this, but you said something that has always stuck with me, and I've quoted you uh, many, many times about it, and that uh, you were talking about the, fi- the fact that you did your own promotion within the store. You had te- these little television monitors, and you said, it is not my job to get the customers in the store. It's my job to sell them once they're in the store. And I thought that was um, brilliant, frankly. Do you still believe that? Do you still practice that? Or am I walking around quoting something that <laughs> you no longer think is valid? Uh, thank you, first of all, for remembering it and then for quoting me for that. Yes, yeah, so our mission is to bring bring our stuff to life. You know, So our strap line alongside our logo is great brands brought to life, and the and the to life bit was was two things. It was it was there to describe to ourselves internally and keep us on a focus in two areas. The first was live demonstration, so we meant bringing it to life because you can see it with your own eyes. Somebody demonstrating that product, that toy, in front of you, and you hopefully then getting a wow reaction from from the onlooker from the from the guest in the store and we found that when we did that at, at stores like hamley's uh selfridges um those type of uh, experiential stores the sales that we could produce per square foot went through the roof i mean you know we we had and have the best selling toy at hamley's uh, i think 11 years in a row and it's sad now that Hamleys are not operating at their, their, their full efficiency and capacity for obvious reasons. But that product, we've we've sold traditionally eighty to one hundred and ten thousand pieces a year at thirteen pounds retail. So that's an over a million pound product from one retail store per year because of demonstration, great demonstration. So that's the first part of, of brought to life. And the second part is if we cannot do it physically, we'll do it virtually. So we'll do it through a video screen. And what we found when we use video screens is when we tried to do a TV type commercial, it wasn't particularly successful. But when we tried an infomercial um, that wasn't necessarily a two-minute infomercial. It was shorter, but it had the wow moments followed by the descriptive ways in which you you got to use the product. So it was a bit like an information manual uh, to some degree, but with those wow moments of the toy in action. When we used those, we would triple sales in store per square foot. So if you put one product on the shelf, or rather if you sold one product on the shelf a week, you would sell three a week. Or, or if you sold one a day, you've gone up to selling three a day by having our video screens. And so do we still do that? Yes, we do. Is it 
always extremely hard to get those video screens in the stores. Yes, <laughs> and I used to I used to fight like like mad with my retailers to try and convince them to take the video screens. And you, you would get the guys and the girls, the, the buyers and the merchandisers and their directors saying, there is no way on God's earth can we put this video screen in store. We haven't got electricity to be able to power it. We can't put screens in because they're going to have to be thrown away at some point. We can't dispose of them properly. They'd have every reason why you couldn't do it. But once we got through that and we got them in there, the results were, were fantastic and still are, um, but it's always a battle. And do you find you're able to translate that strategy to online sales now, even in the U.S., as we're seeing more and more sales transferred online? Because one of the things we've talked to a lot of people about is how important content is to engage consumers and bring them in. So does that strategy work for online as well? We've always used videos for our online sales, but we've always used those videos to support retailers with their online offerings. I remember it wasn't that long ago that so many retailers couldn't accept videos, but they're, they're all pretty much accepting them now. And you, you're going to see that just increase. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, Amazon, I think, still only allow one. I think, now, they think they've just changed it to two videos, but you have to alternate. So when you go on the page with your product and you've got six or seven photographs down the left typically and one of them is a video uh, that you can put two videos there and you can swap between them um, or the consumer can, can, can swap between them. And I think you're just going to see much more video content going onto retailers' sites for sure. In terms of um, e-commerce, obviously everything's been fast forwarded at record speed. You know, everybody who thought um, should they shouldn't they do e-commerce, I think, you know, 80% of those are saying, yes, they, they should. And they're bringing that, that date to go live forward. Um, I think you'll see changes from major toy companies having a very strong online presence going forward, converting wherever they can that customer to be their customer. I think you'll see a lot of that happening and building databases. You've got the opportunity with licensed brands to do that, of course, because there's a, you know the fan base is very defined. You know, so if you said to Facebook or to any of these social media channels, we want to target a particular customer, and that customer's interests are Marvel, and um, they they must like toys. You know, you can get very very focused um, with with and building certain databases. So I I think that the big push will be licensed brands um, from toy manufacturers selling direct, building out a database that they can sell directly to. I, I see that as a trend happening. We've seen it in parts of Europe uh, and the States now. You know, it's funny as you're talking, it's occurring to me that this type of marketing, this demonstrate, this, this kind of having a demonstrator is probably one of the oldest forms of marketing. It dates back to these people who used to stand on street corners. Uh, there used to be a guy here in New York who, uh, he had a British accent, an older man, and he would set up a chair and take out a metal potato peeler. And he would begin doing a, an entire spiel, uh, carving up, and he would get a crowd, a huge crowd of people buying potato peelers. And so it's really funny that here we're talking about the state of the art. It's, it's really the oldest of, of marketing tools. It's about engaging people and allowing them to project themselves into what their life is going to be like when they, when they have that miraculous potato peeler. <laughs> 
it, 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 the interaction, entertainment, excitement, that was one of my earliest inspirations. So it wasn't just the guy, the wealthy guy with his Bentley that, that made me think I want to get into business so I can make a lot of money. What, what my other big and probably biggest was the excitement of seeing a product sold to me by a really good salesperson and thinking, wow, yes, I want to own that. I want to buy that product for all the reasons that this salesman has just told me how it's going to change my life. But it, it is exactly those, that kind of imagery that's, that stayed with me all my life and why, why I wanted to bring it into our business because there's nothing I don't think more, you know, more beautiful than a great salesman doing a, doing a superb pitch. So, Richard North, the toy industry, as you've learned, is nothing if not market responsive. And we are in a new era right now where we are going to be careful about going out. We're going to be wearing masks. And you've introduced a new product that is really addressing that because Richard Gottlieb and I have talked about whether or not the mask is going to be a fashion statement as we go into the fall. So tell us a little bit about this new project. It's pretty amazing. If someone had said to me you know, nine months ago, can you ever see yourself making any kind of face mask? Naturally, we, we would have said, no, it's just not, not what we do. But what we do do is innovation. We've, I, I know so many toy companies uh, also wear that kind of moniker or, or believe that passionately. We, we're very much in that ilk. We believe innovation should be at the forefront of everything that we do. So at the beginning of lockdown, um, my co-founder, um, Dr. Graham Taylor, a scientist, said that he thought he'd come up with an angle on face masks that could help people or encourage people to wear them. Um, he felt strongly, um, because his background was in this area, that people should wear face coverings, wear, wear face masks. Uh, he previously looked at the studies uh, about all this, which you're now starting to see come out, and, and felt that the governments around the world would be recommending them. His thought was, how do you get them to be more approachable? How do you get them to be more friendly? So that was the original challenge. I've got an idea on masks. And his idea was that he could design something, manufacture a kind of material, cotton material, that could be printed onto through a home inkjet printer. Trialed it and trialed it. He sent me lots of copies of this uh, that I tried at home and finally cracked it. And we had this, what looks like an A4 sheet of paper, but it's actually a cotton material and a wax back paper uh, feeds into any regular inkjet printer. And then, you know, you put your design, your design in through your computer and it printed out onto this template. You then cut it out, assemble it in just a few minutes and you've got a face mask. He then designed an app and it was, during the, des the design of the app that my wife, uh, we were having dinner and a month into the pandemic, she just asked the question, how bad is business at the moment? She'd obviously seen me quite stressed. And I said, to be really honest, it, we're down about 45%. And that's what we're tracking for year on year. So not far off a halving of our sales year on year, at that level, we were going to lose a lot of money. Uh, so we'd cut our overheads. We'd put people on 20% less pay. Everybody had accepted that throughout the company in the US, in Hong Kong, and in the UK. They'd been fantastic. Everybody was was trying to help out any way they could. We'd closed our offices. Uh, we, everybody obviously was working from home. But she asked me this question. She was then talking about the face masks. And my daughter said, who works in pro our product development team, she said, 
but the face masks, it's a brilliant idea and you print them out and you can, you know, put different designs on it. But how do you really get girls my age, 16 to sort of 24 Gen, Gen Z, how do you get them feeling really comfortable wearing masks? The fashion conscious girls, how do you get them feeling comfortable wearing them? And my wife asked Graham, my, my colleague, uh, we got him on the phone because she came up with this idea and she said, could you take a photo of any outfit you're wearing? any dress, any blouse with any pattern on it and then print that straight out onto the mask. Because if you could, obviously, it's going to match yeah, any outfit, cool. your wardrobe, anything at all. And, of course, he, he, he came back immediately. He said, look, I've looked at this. Not only can we do it, that can go in the patent. We got excited by it, but at this point, still early days, still lots of testing going on. And because of Graham's work in quality control and quality assurance and, and the background he comes from in toxicology. He wanted to make sure that our masks were something to be really proud of. And so he wanted them to meet or exceed not just the World Health Organization's requirements, recommendations rather, um, AFNOR in France, uh, CDC, US CDC. He wanted them to be better than anything. So we spent then the next two months just making sure that the breathability and the and the bacterial filtration was was absolutely world class, and it is. Um, so we just released them. Uh, well, about three weeks ago, and it's the busiest, biggest, uh, best selling line we have ever produced. What's it called? It's it's going to be called when it launches. <laughs> it's something very simple: the printable mask. We've worked with a company um, that you guys will know in the U.S. called um, – so Skyrocket uh, is the company in the yeah. U.S. They saw my post on LinkedIn saying, look what we're launching, and they reached out, and, um, and we got a lot of interest at the time. And they said, look, you know, we'll move quick. We're passionate about this. Uh, the CEO, Nilo, he said, look, I'm, I think what you've done here to encourage kids – to wear masks and young folk and the fashion conscious is beyond what anybody else has really done. You know, it gets you crafting masks at home. It gets you, gets them, in, gets the kids encouraged to build them themselves and to wear them and to feel good about wearing them. We've done a deal with those guys and we're going to create and have created a, an overarching brand called Snap Style. So it's the printable mask by Snap Style, um, fastest selling line that we've done. Uh, world's first printable, home printable face mask. That is classic toy industry. It is being able to see something in the market, respond quickly, move heaven and earth, and get it out there because that's really how the toy industry worked, certainly in the post-World War II years. When you see companies like Whammo and Hasbro and Mattel, uh, their earlier days, that's classic toy industry. So congratulations. On a, uh, a more... Uh... I wouldn't say grimmer note. You guys are looking at Brexit in the UK. Uh, you've been dealing with coronavirus in a world that's uh, politically turbulent. Uh, how does it look from over there? I suppose going back to what Chris just mentioned there about classic toy industry is about pivoting and moving quickly. So I'd, I'd actually say having worked in this industry now for 10 years, uh, you do become conditioned in a positive way to have to pivot quickly and to uh, adapt if you're going to survive and thrive. So I think industries like the toy industry will actually do quite quite well because it's in their nature to move fast on things and to change quickly. In terms of industry generally, it looks cloudy from here at the moment. 
uh, off the back of COVID, a kind of dynamic, driven, but focused individual like Boris Johnson, who knows what he wants, but what he wants, do we know for a fact it's going to work? We just don't. And the longer that a deal is not done with Europe means it's more likely a, a good deal won't be done. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll come out without a deal. What does that mean? Nobody really knows. Um, so I think you're going to see people getting quite scared as we head in towards end of November and companies, you know, I think there'll be quite a lot of people, a lot of business up in arms and challenging the government. So we just don't know what, what clarity is yet. We still don't know. Richard, you're weathering the storm. You've always been very forward looking. When you look into your uh, crystal ball, and I wouldn't be surprised if you and Graham hadn't invented a crystal ball by now. What do you see coming? What's the world going to look like from a, you know, a toy industry point of view? I think the, the word consolidation is going, to, um, is going to be very prevalent across uh, trade media over the next six to 12 months. I think small businesses will be grouping together to get to, to try and get some leverage as there's ever fewer retailers selling toys in the sense that you know the independents have always been hit hard by the uh, the mass retailers and the mass retailers really got a wake up by amazon and uh, and other online retailers that could sell at a lower cost a lower price so i think you'll see consolidation from toy manufacturers and Toy retailers, the savvy ones, you know, you, in the UK, we've got Smith's Toys, The Entertainer. They're super smart guys and their culture is endemic throughout their organization. That's going to be so important going forward. The guy at the top has got to be speaking the same as the guy on the shop floor. And all the way through that business, if they don't know what they stand for and they don't know what, how they should behave and, and you see any disparities, I think you'll see the weaknesses and those retailers will drop by the wayside. So the, um, the, the current super savvy retailers in, uh, as independents will do, will do well. I think they'll actually prosper again. Uh, it'll take another year and a half to get properly back on the feet. Mass retailers is the interesting one. You know, the Walmarts and Target, what's going to happen in the toy sections? Are they going to slim it down? Are they going to expand it or will it stay about the same? What would my bet on that be? I think one thing I would bet on is Amazon will get ever stronger. Richard North of Wow Stuff, thank you so much for talking to us today. I hope your parking meter hasn't run out in all of this time <laughs> where you are on the streets of London. But it's certainly been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Richard. And by the way, yes, it, it ran out two minutes ago. But uh, <laughs> for the reminder. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I throw around some ideas that are topical, top of mind and buzzing about in the industry. And today we're talking about the fairly prosaic topic of warehouses. <laughs> Chris, it, it is a, a prosaic um, topic, but it is profound, and, and, and I'll tell you why. It was um, two headlines, really, that, that caught my attention uh, this week. One was um, a headline that said Amazon, uh, the, the headline is Amazon to build 1,500 
new last mile way warehouses in arms race with Walmart. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of construction. And the other one was warehouses beat malls as virus fuels record global investment. And, and basically what it's saying is that, um, uh, warehouse deals accounted for a record share of global commercial real estate investment in the first half of the year, as the surge in e-commerce during lockdown fueled demand for logistic properties. And Chris, I think this is really a lot about the future. People aren't investing in retail. And I also noticed, and we're going to talk about this, they're not investing in manufacturing. They're investing in distribution. Absolutely. And I think that, again, we're shifting the risk to the manufacturers, which has been the trend for the last 10 or more years. And at the same time, trying to streamline distribution to get same day delivery in some cases to consumers. And according to Shopify, online sales are going to be $4.2 trillion globally this year. That's up significantly. In the U.S., we're looking at $708 billion, which is a 14.5% increase over last year, according to Forbes. So, not just quarantine, but absolutely the trend is towards online buying. And, and what that means, Chris, I think, is, is, is that the role of the consumer is therefore changes from being uh, more than a purchaser. They become the final link in the supply chain. In a sense, it bypasses retail. It, it, that, that could be the future. And secondly, what struck me was that it's all about operations and logistics right now. And, and nowhere did I read there's any manufacturing facilities being built. And I think that's extremely important. You know, we, we hear a lot of conversation about China and moving uh, manufacturing back to Western Europe or back to the United States. Nobody's building factories. From the manufacturer standpoint, getting the product landed and to the DCs is really going to be unchanged. There may be a few logistical hiccups as to going to different places, but the whole idea is more volume is going into the warehouses. Bottom line, it's the infrastructure for the future consumption is being built right now. And when you're building 1,500 warehouses, and what they mean by last mile warehouses, is these are warehouses that will be in your community that will be within drone reach of your home. And yes, drone delivery, everybody, is happening. Uh, so uh, I think we all need to pay attention to this. I think it's going to call for a great deal of flexibility on everyone's part. And it's very rare that you get a chance to actually see the future being built right before your eyes. I think so. And I think we've already started to see the future of shopping because... So many of the people we've spoken to have talked about the importance of content, the importance of sophisticated videos on Amazon for immersive selling experiences, because retail is not going to go away. Retail is going to keep growing. People are going to keep buying stuff. How they shop and how they buy, the trend is definitely towards more and more online. I even heard, I was reading about something in California where people are now asking real estate agents if there is an Amazon room meaning a room where people could receive packages. So you're going to have your own like receiving dock in your home. When I was a kid, we called that the garage. But, uh, you know, it's like the gift wrapping room or something insane like that. You know, it's funny. It went from the garage to the mud room. Right, right. And, then, and now I think to the receiving room. I, I think that's uh, 
incredible. And, and just one final comment. You, you made a very accurate comment about the importance of content, uh, about the importance of communication. And, you know, Chris, TikTok would not be on the agenda for the United States and China if it wasn't important. And if you and if you if you want to look nowhere else for how important Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, TikTok, all of this is, and is part not apart from, but a part of the infrastructure of consumption. All right, because it's all about engagement, and we are so happy that you've engaged with us here on the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, and Kid Stuff Public Relations. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to having you listen next time.